The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Today what we're going to do is we're going to uh, kind of talk about some of the big ideas and uh, uh oh I might run on the Yeah, today what we're going to do is talk about uh, pattern formation in biology, uh, some of the different mechanisms that are employed uh, in development and other contexts in order to, uh, for organisms to kind of figure out where to put things. All right? Now, before I get into that too much, I want to just make a couple administrative type announcements. Um, so first, uh, we have graded the exams, and we'll hand them uh, back at the end of, end of class today. Uh, if I try to forget, then please somebody remind me. What we're going to do is we're going to start by just uh, kind of talking about diffusion a bit more. Uh, I think that there's a fair range of different uh, maybe experiences thinking about uh, diffusion and what it can do for you. So we'll, we'll work on our intuition a little bit. And then uh, I'll say something about the reading that you did from, from Uri's book about uh, kind of robust mechanisms for pattern formation in the context of development. All right, so simple diffusion with degradation leads to these exponential profiles. Uh, that are not robust to changes in uh, the concentration or the production rate of the morphogen. Whereas, uh, whereas if you have self-enhanced degradation, then this leads to a power law um, kind of fall off that does have some, that's, that's more robust to the, uh, to the concentration of this morphogen. Okay. Uh, then what we're going to do is uh, transition to these, these Turing patterns, you know, reaction diffusion systems, where uh, you can have a really surprising effect whereby if you, in a well-mixed situation, these uh, chemicals or proteins or reactants, they might, uh, they might just reach a stable state. Okay? However, once you add diffusion, then you can start getting pattern formation, which is a very funny thing because uh, uh, diffusion is normally something that smooths out profiles. So normally we think about diffusion as being something that removes patterns. And indeed, that's generally what happens. But uh, in this, uh, following from this class of work from Alan Turing at uh, the end of his life, he, uh, he showed that it's actually in principle possible to have uh, the emergence of patterns from diffusion. And, and we'll talk about some of, the, uh, some of the ways that that can possibly happen. Uh, interestingly, all right, so Turing patterns are already kind of a surprising case where, where, some, where diffusion leads to patterns. There's another interesting phenomenon where if you add another source of noise that, again, you think noise, for example, demographic noise, the random creation, destruction of, of individuals or chemicals or proteins, normally we think that this should also kind of be a force for removing patterns. But uh, there's been a, a number of uh, pieces of, of work over the last decade showing that in some cases, demographic noise can actually lead to patterns, either in space or in time. We're going to talk more about this in the context of uh, these so-called noise-induced predator-prey oscillations. But um, since we're talking about patterns here, I just want to mention, I will tell you something about how uh, such noise can enhance the formation of patterns. The, you know, in, in the context of, of the Turing mechanism. And, uh, and then we'll end by talking some about recent work on, of how uh, E. coli uh, find uh, the center of their cell when they want to divide. All right, so you can imagine that this is uh, not, an obvious, not an obvious thing to figure out how you might do. And we'll tell you, uh, uh, we'll talk about the, the so-called min system that E. coli used to find the center of their cell so they know where to septate, where to cut off and take two cells. All right, so I, I just want to start by making sure that 
when we talk about diffusion, we're all talking about kind of the same thing. Uh, um, now, hopefully, for those of you that have not been thinking about diffusion so much recently, you did uh, read the notes that uh, Alexander van Oudenarden put together for systems biology a few years ago. Uh, I think it's just it's uh, useful, but in addition to the math, uh, as maybe many of you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of um, sort of graphical representations of ideas. Right, so, um, yeah, so I just want to make sure that we, um, we're, we all kind of agree on, on some of the, the basic ideas of how, for example, we get uh, flux in the context of diffusion. Okay. Right, so imagine that, there, that we have a one-dimensional system where there's some uh, chemical with concentration uh, C. And we can imagine, for example, it starts out looking like this. Okay, so this is a concentration profile as a function of position x, where we have uh, maybe a box of length L. Okay. Concentration of some chemicals as a function of position x in some space. Okay. Now I just want to make sure that we're all thinking about the same thing. All right, so it starts out some concentration C1. Over here might be some C2. Right. Linearly here. All right, I just want to make sure uh, we all agree on the uh, magnitude of the flux at some different points. Okay. So in particular, we can think about a, b. This is capital C. All right. So where is the f uh, magnitude of the flux largest? A, B, C, D corresponds to them being the same. E, uh, don't know. All right. Are there any questions about the question? Yes? On the y-axis, you're plotting the function of position. Yes, this y-axis is the concentration as a function of the position x. Okay. All right, I'll give you another five seconds to think about it. All right, do you need more time? All right, let's vote. Ready? Three, two, one. OK, great. Uh, so I'd say a vast majority here are agreeing that it's going to be D. This is all, the, the flux is going to be the same everywhere. Okay. Now the flux, can somebody remind us? We'll say the flux J. And what, what is it going to be? All right, so there's a minus a d times the change in c with respect to x. And so this is this was derived in the notes. All right, so this is uh, highlighting that what leads to a flux is the change is the change in the concentra concentration with respect to the position. All right, so it doesn't matter that the concentration is higher here than here. You have the same flux, and the flux is in which direction? Left, right, up, down. Three, two, one. Left, right? So the flux is here. Okay. All right. Minus sign. Uh, like always, it's hard to remember from equations whether there are plus minus signs, but 
you should be able to just, remember you can draw something like this and say, okay, this is a positive dc dx, so flux is going to be in the negative direction, right? Now, what will be the change in the concentration with respect to time uh, at this point right now? Is it, all right, so this is change in the concentration at point B with respect to time. Is it greater than 0, equal to 0, less than 0, or can't determine? Can't Does everybody understand the question that I'm trying to ask? The change in the concentration at this point, respect to time, at this time, that's wrong. I'll give you five seconds to. All right, ready? Three, two, one. Okay. And so this, uh, again, it's pretty good, but not, um, not everyone. All right, so it is going to be B. Can somebody, can somebody explain why, why it's B here? Yes? There's as much flux coming in as yeah. coming out on the other side. That's right. So it's true that, that these particles, that, that there's a net flux here coming to the left. But from the standpoint, if we want to know how, whether the, there's a change in the concentration at that point, we need to know about what's the net number of particles Moving to the left versus the net particle that are particle number that are coming in the, from the right. Okay. Now, of course, on this left face, if I drew draw a little box here, are all the particles crossing this kind of position? Are they all moving to the left? No. Right. So and the idea is that all the particle motion is random. And indeed, there's only a slight excess of particles moving to the left as compared to the right in the sense that if you look at the concentration here, the concentration is rather large. It's only a little bit larger to the right than to the left of this plane, which means that there's only a slight excess of particles diffusing to the left as compared to the right. But that leads to a net flux of particles uh, crossing this plane to the left. All right. So where, um, where will the concentration be changing? At, at this point here, will the concentration be changing respect to time? Ready, three, two, one. No. All right, so will, does, it, does it change at all, at all ever anywhere in this example? All right, is this a steady state profile? Yes or no? Ready, three, two, one. No. no. Okay, what should be the steady state profile? Flat. So how does that come about? If if the concentration is not changing anything, you know, yeah, yeah, it only change. It's only changing at the edges initially. Right. Now it's important to note that it's not that the concentration profile is going to just. It's not going to start looking like this, right? So that will not actually be how it. You know, eventually it's going to be flat, right? But it's going to kind of uh, smooth out on the edges, and then it'll kind of. Do you guys understand what I'm trying to say? It's not that it's a line that just kind of goes like this, but instead we, we do end up getting curvature. Okay. 
All right. One more of these, and then, uh, and then we'll consider ourselves to be expert diffusionists. Okay. All right, so let's say the concentration as a function of position looks something like this. Okay. All right, what I want to know is uh, where is it, where is dc dt uh, maximal? We have some different points. We have A, B, C, D. Five seconds. All right, ready? Three, two, one. Hmm. All right, so we finally got a lot of disagreement. I like it. Okay, turn uh, turn to your neighbor. We should you should be able to find somebody that disagrees with you. What is it that determines? Did you guys all agree? Okay. But you all agree on it? Okay. Let, let's go ahead and reconvene. Uh, and let, let me see. Uh, it, may, it may be that we're forming domains of some sort. All right, ready? Wait. <laughs> he says, no, no. All right. Okay, one question. Yeah. Which is, like, is this instant? In some sense, um, like, is yeah, exactly at the instant. All right, so I, I guess the, what I would say is that um, right, this is this is concentration profile at some t time at as a function of position and time. And if you want to know the concentration profile sometime delta t later, right? T plus delta t, right? Well, then you know it's going to be the concentration that we had before, and then a little bit. You know, plus delta t times the 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 derivative with respect to time, right? So I get you know, so it's it's at this right. So this is the concentration profile at this time, and I want to know how how much is it going to change in the next delta t. Yeah. And I'm assuming, of course, that I'm not adding any particles or taking any particles away, right? So just due to diffusion. All right, let's see where we are. Ready? Three, two, one. Okay. Uh, all right, so it's, um, you know, we've got domain, definitely some domains. All right, so it's some, um, all right, well, it's going to end up being A, as I think a majority of the group is now saying. All right, so, uh, and why, why is it A? Because the second derivative. Second derivative, right? 
So just what we said before is that if we wanted to know DC, the change of concentration with respect to time, at this point that was 0 because there was no, the, the flux of particles to the left, or the flux of particles leaving that point and the flux coming in were the same. Right? And, and that's because of, and we can also think about a second derivative. All right, so this indeed just from fixed, I guess that was first law, we get a D. So this gives second derivative, C with respect to x squared. All right, so that's a 2. Okay. All right, what this is saying is that to determine how rapidly the concentration is going to change at a particular point with respect to time, we need to know uh, the curvature of the concentration with respect to position. So many people were saying C here. And actually, this is where the concentration will remain exactly constant over this next delta t. Right? And of course, if we, if we want to know about what the concentration is going to do for a long time, then we have to do something more subtle. Right? But if we want to know how, how the concentration is changing right now, then we just look at the curvature. Okay? And indeed, the curvature here is, is maximal. Right? So, Concentration, dc, dt at this point, is it going to be greater or less than 0? Ready? 3, 2, 1. Less than 0. Right? Now, it's true that only the curvature at a particular point matters to know how the concentration is going to change at this, at, over this next delta t. But if you want to know about what's going to happen over longer periods of time, then you have to worry about more of the global structure. Because what's true is that this, may quickly, this local maximum may quickly go away. Right? So you don't have to wait very long before this thing gets smooth, and then dc dt will uh, kind of uh, will the magnitude will go to zero, right? So in, in some sense, this big hump will stick around longer, right? But because of the curvature, this has uh, the maximal of um, magnitude of dc dt. And it makes sense that the concentration is going to go down because the net flux here is to the right and to the left. And so there's a net flux of particles leaving. Concentration is going to come down. Okay. Now, are there any questions about what we've said? I'd say that if, you're, um, if you find this discussion confusing, I would, um, I would strongly encourage you to get together with a friend and just draw some random lines, curves, and just make sure you understand where diffusion is going to pull things and so forth. Okay. Right. No questions about that? Okay. All right. Whoa. Uh, all right, so I just want to say a few things about, uh, about the so-called French flag model in development. So this is perhaps the most famous. All right, does everybody know what the French flag looks like? What's that? All right, yeah, I know. There are three stripes in some orientation, right? Um, now, but the, idea, the idea here is just that a, a simple way to specify uh, kind of a structure across um, one axis is to have a diffusing um, chemical or generally a protein. And then uh, based on the concentration of that protein or morphogen, you can uh, just have the tissue kind of read out what it's supposed to be. What, you know, what it's supposed to do. Right? So the idea here is that you have um, some morphogen that starts maybe on one end of an embryo, and it diffuses. Right? So we end up with some curve that tells us about 
the morphogen concentration as a function of position. Right? This is as a function of position. Right? So this is along, say, the embryo. Right? Now, the general challenge in the context of development is asking, we, you know, we start with this, we start with this embryo with uh, many different cells. They're all genetically identical, and they all start out maybe without any uh, positional information. They don't know where they are, but uh, what that means is they don't know whether they, they need to uh, develop into either a head or a tail or something in between. Okay. Now, uh, the, what often happens is that you can have a deposition often by the, um, you know, by the mother. So you have maternal deposition of, say, RNA that leads to expression of some morphogen on one end, and then it diffuses. And based on the concentration, you can say what, um, what part of the body you should be developing into. Right? So there, the idea is you just have these thresholds right, that might be some M1, M2. Right? Now all the cells uh, over here know that they should maybe develop into a head. Over here, they're going to develop into the mid-body. And over down here, it could be the lower body, for example. Okay? So just from the concentration that a cell feels at a particular location. So if you imagine you're a cell right here, you just say, OK, I can, you know, the concentration of the morphogen is between M1 and M2. And then uh, from that, you, you know what you're supposed to be. Okay. Now, if you have uh, no degradation within the body, let's just imagine you say, you, um, let's say that at one end, 0, we're told morphogen concentration is M0. And let's say that the other end, we know that the morphogen concentration is going to be 0. Let's say there's a lot of degradation at an end. Right, what, um, if there's no degradation in between, what should the profile look like, given these? All right. So no. All right, so just diffusion with these boundary conditions. Right, I'm going to draw some options, and hopefully you can come close your eyes and imagine what it should be. Right? We know that it starts out at m naught. Over at L, it's equal to 0. All right, is it closest to A, B, C, or D? Do you guys do you understand what I'm asking? Yes? This is the steady state um, concentration profile, the morphogen given uh, there's no degradation in the interior. Yeah. Ready? Three, two, one. All right. Yeah, so we're uh, at least a majority are agreeing it's going to be B, although there's a significant minority that's saying A. Right? And uh, this is why I'm bringing this up, because uh, we're so used to seeing exponential profiles. We kind of think that you should always be getting them. And I want to be clear about why, it, why it's an exponential profile that is the thing that we start with. And for example, this model uh, in Nuri's book. Right? Nuri's book. You, you get exponential profiles as a result of first order degradation. Okay. Whereas if you do not have any, if you don't have any degradation in the interior, then 
you know, we, we say, okay, DC, D, well, do we want to use C or M now? Okay. Um, we'll use M just because now we're thinking very particularly for a morphogen. All right, so DM, DT, right? Okay. We want to know the steady state profile. Okay. We set this thing equal to zero. All right. Integrate twice. All right, so we're going to get the mor morphogen profile should just be some uh, AX plus B. Okay. My line was kind of crappy. I'm sorry. Okay. Right. However, when we have first order degradation, then we then we get these uh, these exponential profiles. Okay. Um, are there are there any questions about Yeah, right. So th this would be this require. Yeah, what does this require? Yeah. Degraded at. at yeah, right. So it, right. So um, that, that's what I'm saying is that to, when I I guess when when I said that at the end it was a zero, this is, means that we have degradation at the at this point. Right, so any time that uh, the morphogen reaches the end of the embryo, say it would have to, it gets degraded. Um, right, so it's not degradation inside, but it's only degradation here, right? And this would this would correspond to a situation where you have constant flux throughout the embryo, constant rate of production of the morphogen, constant rate of degradation over here, okay. right? Uh, right. But when you have this first order degradation, right? So if uh, if we're told that instead, well, maybe. So if in addition to having diffusion, you also have this first order degradation. Right. Now remember, m is a function of both x and t. Right. Then this is, this is the situation where we get, uh, where we get exponential profiles. Okay. Now in, in, in Uri's book, he often discusses this, where the, uh, the boundary condition is that you have some concentration m naught. At the at one end, and then uh, this is M, and then we get an exponential profile here. Okay. What was the characteristic length scale? And this is something that we should be able to figure out. All right. But you should, of course, be able to. Solve the equations, but you should be able to figure it out you know, from our favorite uh, approach of dimensional analysis. What's the what's the units of things here? Okay, so units of d is what? Length squared over time. All right, and units of alpha. Right, so this is a morphogen concentration over a time. This is a morphogen concentration. So, so this thing has to be one over time. Right, so the length scale is then going to have to go as the square root of d over alpha. 
right? And indeed, if you solve it, it's, it's exactly equal to that. But this dimensional analysis was just told us that it had to scale like that. Okay. All right. So this is telling us about this characteristic length over which this morphogen profile is going to fall off. All right. This is the characteristic length L. Okay. Incidentally, you'll see many cases of uh, of things that look like this. All right. So if there's first order uh, rate that something is either degraded or is uptaken or whatnot, then uh, then together with diffusion you'll get uh, an exponential profile um, with uh, with the characteristic length scale that's given by this ratio. Right? And so you'll you'll see this in many different contexts of, for example, nutrients kind of going into a biofilm. Right? If if you have cells picking up nutrients, then it's roughly kind of It's not that it's being degraded, but it's being imported. Right? Then you'll have a similar process. All right, so this is, uh, this is a nice, fine situation, except for um, what was the problem that Uri pointed out? It's not robust. And it's not robust against what? Initial condition, uh, yes, but I think we have to be a little bit more specific than that. Right, it's not robust to changes in M0. Incidentally, in, in most contexts, I mean, I think for, for mathematical simplicity, it's useful to just have a boundary condition where m0 is constant. But uh, in general, uh, is, is, that what the, is that what the mother is going to be fixing necessarily? What would, what would the mother typically be fixing? What's that? The production rate. The production rate, right? How, how do we figure out what the production rate is in this situation? Right, the flux where? Right at. Zero. That's right, right. So the production rate is the flux right at or just to the right of, of zero. Okay. Incidentally, where is the flux maximal here? Is it maximal at A, B, or C? Ready? Three, two, one. You can do it verbally. Fine. A, A. Right. And that's because it's the profile is steepest here, and then shallows out. Right. So flux is decreasing here. And that's because uh, some of the uh, morphogen is being degraded, right? Right. So indeed, we can figure out what the fl the the production rate. Right. This is um, equal to the flux, right? Which is equal to minus dc dx, right? That location, right? So the constant the morphogen profile m as a function of x is some m naught e to the minus x over l, where l is given by this characteristic length scale, right? So uh, if we ask what's dm dx, well, it's going to be, we get a minus m naught over l. Okay. Evaluated at x equal to 0, just makes that go away. So we end up with uh, this. Uh, so you can figure out what, what, the, what the flux is, right? Uh, yeah, so it's just an extra couple of terms. It's fine. Uh, but that, that would be what's, what would typically be constant, because there might be some um, out of 
RNA deposit there, or if it's actually transcription off of um, the genes at, at this, you know, in the cells in this location, then, and then it's based on whether there's one or two copies and so forth. All right, so so uh, okay, so th this is this is all all fine, except that this thing is not robust to changes in M naught or this production rate. Whereas in many cases, what we see experimentally is that if we uh, if we, for example, have the production rate, then the profile that we see out here is somehow remarkably similar. Okay. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'd say that um, the in many cases it's not that it's directly this m squared business, but there are a number number of cases in Drosophila that um, where they, they actually do do see this, uh, and and uh, in many cases it was via this active the it was sort of it was a self-enhanced degradation, but not that it was directly it was via binding to a receptor. So this was seen in uh, in patchless. Together, I want to remember which uh, which were the models that um, I guess it was. Okay, I'm always, I'm worried that I'm always going to get. So it's like patches, patchless, and frizzled. Or do you, are, are there any Drosophila people here that that can the came up with these crazy names? Um, I'm trying to. Hmm. All right. Yeah. So I. I always get confused about which which uh, which are the morphogens and which are the receptors in, in these situations. But uh, but I'd say that uh, it 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 is something that's observed in a number both I'd say a number of different contexts, both in um, at different stages of development, both in Drosophila and you know and like both in the, they see this in the wing as well as in the body. Yeah, so at different stages, I, I think it um, it it is seen actually. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm very much not a developmental biologist, so I. Um, Right, so, so the, the proposal that, that Uri suggests as a way to kind of make this thing more robust is to somehow change this term, right? Now, the goal in, in all this was to have some degradation rate. And he writes it as f is a function of the concentration m. In principle, this thing could be a function of the position x, but he doesn't want that. And why was it that he didn't want that? Yes. Right. So the whole the whole goal is that we want to start with some situation where we kind of don't know where we are as a function of position x, and then from that get some spatial information. Right. So we really want something that's not a function of x in there. Right. Because then we're kind of we've already solved the problem that we're trying to address. Right. Um, Right, and, and so one, one proposal is indeed just to have something that, and this is very much a phenomenological approach, which is to have, have this thing be uh, kind of have self-enhanced degradation. Right, and uh, I, right, so the idea is that if, if here, if we have the morphogen profile, that was looks something like this, and I just want, yeah, I want to highlight the, um, 
in the context of, there's multiple ways you can have something that looks like this, right? So um, if along the way to degradation, if the morphogen actually binds a receptor that then activates the degradation, and this is seen, for example, in Drosophila. Uh, this is hedgehog and patched. So R is. Right, so in this case, you have the morphogen that's diffusing outside the cells. It binds to the receptor, and then the receptor activates important degradation of the morphogen. Right? So this is, it's not that the morphogen is directly leading to its own uh, degradation, but it's via some network here. And there was an, another one that they talk about, which is that when the degradation is mediated by you know, two Things look like this, and this is in context, and this is again Drosophila, but um, you could probably guess what this thing does. Okay, and so in, in context of wing development as well, right? Um, yeah, so so it's not, and it's not that this has to be. If you write down an actual model of one of these things, and you could play with it and see where you're going to get something that's going to look like an M square type term, but. Um, the nice thing about this phenomenological approach is it kind of gives you a sense of the kinds of uh, effects that you should be looking for that will enhance uh, the robustness of the pattern. Okay. Now, the key thing in this whole discussion to remember is that if you have a profile here, if you, if you change, that it's somehow translationally invariant in the sense that since there's no information about where you are here, you know, these patterns can kind of slide over, right? So if you change, the boundary condition m0, that's just equivalent to sliding this over some distance. And you could figure out where everything has to go, right? All right and, the same, and that's true not just for the exponential profile, but for any of the profiles. Right? And that's just because there's no information about what's going on you know, in, once you're inside the embryo. Okay? And can, some, can somebody kind of give the, the intuitive explanation for why some sort of self-enhanced degradation like this might, uh, might make the pattern more robust? Decrease faster when m is big. That's right. And, and, and so the idea is that if you change the m0 here, for example, you double it, then with a self-enhanced degradation, you kind of quickly come back to where you kind of were, right? So there's some sense that you'll, if the pattern kind of quickly comes down, then, um, then you can get it being more robust, right? And in particular, uh, this profile uh, for, uh, for, lar uh, for large x and in kind of the proper regime, it, this thing falls off as some, um, some a over x squared. Okay. And indeed, uh, one of the problems in Uri's book is that if, if this is just degrading as m to some power n, then you can calculate what happens here. But, uh, but this is a, you know, some sort of power law fall off. Okay. So of course, it, it's falling off rapidly here, but, somehow, but not as rapidly as, as if it were an exponential. Right? And this is just like in the case of the power law distributions of networks that we were talking about before, right? that for the exponential fall off, then it's just very, very unlikely that you'll find some node with many edges. Similarly here, it's, uh, you, you quickly fall to 0 here as compared to a power law type distribution. Right? So that means that you can, uh, you can specify patterns out further in some sense. Right? 
there any questions about this, this basic idea and where it comes from? Um, I think the discussion in Uri's book is actually reasonable. So I don't really want to spend too much time on it. Um, in the context of uh, the, so the Eldar model that was sort of the last section of, um, of that chapter, I think that it's um, one thing I just want to highlight is that it's, uh, it's useful to be able to look at these models. And from the equations that you see, for example, in the supplemental material of the paper, Make sure you are very clear about what assumptions uh, they've made in, in, in getting into this model, right? And um, and so maybe I'll, we'll just spend a few minutes um, talking uh, talking about this. All right. So this is uh, again an intrasophal embryo, two two and a half hours after uh, after fertilization, where. Uh, at that stage, you really have the embryo that kind of looks like a, where we're trying to understand the, the patterning around the kind of the front back, right? So we think about diffusion along in one dimension, but it's really a, around this radial direct direction, right? And in particular, where he's, this is trying to understand uh, patterning in the dorsal region, okay? And what we have is a situation where we have this protease, the inhibitor. Right, so the protease is kind of distributed uniformly. The inhibitor starts out out there. And then we have the morphogen that somehow starts out in here. We want to end up with a situation where uh, the morphogen profile in here is kind of well-defined, right? So where you just have morphogen at the center of this, uh, this dorsal region. And, and then we have diffusion of these inhibitors coming in, and then the morphogen coming out. And, so, and the question is, um, how, can, how can we make sense of this? Right. And if you, if you look at the equations that they write down, right, so we have diffusion of the inhibitor. This is the complex of uh, the inhibitor and the morphogen. Okay. Complex C. Oops. So this is a case where they wrote down the basic, what they, what they basically knew about the biology of the system. And then they asked, well, what kind of, what range of parameters would lead to uh, a robust pattern of the morphogen in here? If you varied things such as the total concentration of the inhibitor, the morphogen, or the protease. Okay. All right, so we have uh, diffusion of each of these things, the inhibitor, the morphogen uh, complex. We're not going to worry about the protease because this thing is uniform, uniformly distributed. Right? You can argue about whether that's the right thing to do, but that's at least in the model. Right, so we have diffusion of each of these guys. 
Right. Can somebody say what's going on here? What, what, what are these things trying to capture? Yeah, John. Right. So this is just saying, okay, it's the complex is formed as a result of binding of the inhibitor and the morphogen. It's proportional to concentrations of those two things at that particular position at that particular time. Right? And just remember that any time that you create something, if you are, well, if you have, if you have binding of two things together, then you have to consider uh, these things going away. And it's not that they're being degraded. It's just that they're forming this complex. Okay. So in these equations, you just have to be very careful about keeping track of which things are, are really going away and which things are just changing form. Yeah? So the chaos is like when, when the binds to the morphogen, like never unbind. Right. So this is, it, I, I want to be, you're saying why that there's not a, a minus term. In the, yeah, so this, right, so this is an assumption. Right. You know, and I think that this is the kind of thing that, right, you know, you have to be very clear about in any of these models, because you can, that, that's always going to occur at some rate, right? And what the assumption the assumption is that that this is the this is this is dominant, okay. right? And then just to be clear in words, what is this thing? So it's the protease cleaving. Right. It's the protease. All right. And you're saying cleaving the inhibitor and. Right. So the, at, at, at a rate proportional to the protease concentration, the complex concentration, this complex goes away. Right. Now the question is, we have to figure out where it kind of went or what happened. Right. Well, and we have an alpha, we have a minus alpha C here, but then we have a um, plus alpha C here. But this is at the morphogen. Right. So this is at the rate that the complex is being somehow is is being disappeared by the protease. The morphogen is appearing, right? But then it do, we don't have the same term here, right? And that's, that's, for, so it's, that's how you know that what the protease is doing is it's, uh, it's degrading the inhibitor as part of the complex, right? So by looking at these equations, you can actually you can figure out what are the assumptions that have been made and what the biology is that's being captured here. But in many cases, there are assumptions about what's big and what's small. And then what's, what's this thing here? Somebody else that has not yet. Do these equations look familiar? All right. Yes, please. Yeah, that's right. It's the protease degrading the inhibitor when the inhibitor is not bound to the morphogen. Right. Now, of course, uh, what, what the authors did next is they kind of searched numerically across parameter space over four orders of magnitude. And they found that for some parameter regime, there was, uh, there was a robust pattern of the morphogen developed in here. Right. And, um, and there's no reason for you to necessarily remember which, uh, which thing it was. But what, what they found is that if this term kind of went away and this term went away, then you end up getting a robust profile of the morphogen against uh, changes in the overall morphogen or inhibitor concentration. Right? Now this, but this is pretty weird, I would say. Um, 
Right, so I don't know. Do you think, is this one weird? I don't know. I mean, weirdness is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, but I would say it's not so shocking. I mean, um, pro, the, but this is saying, but okay, this is saying that the, well, can somebody say verbally what, 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 the, what this would correspond to? That's right. The protease doesn't degrade the inhibitor on its own, only when it's part of the complex with the morphogen. Okay. And actually, apparently, there was experimental data already indicating that was true. So you could have, if you wanted to, just written the model without that, because that was, there was already evidence for that. But I'd say this is a pretty weird, um, this is a pretty weird thing. Right? Um, okay. and, and so this would be saying that for some reason, diffusion of the morphogen on its own is, is very small. And in particular, small compared to diffusion of the morphogen when it's complex. Right. Now, can, um, can somebody say why I might think that's weird? I mean, you don't have to believe it's weird. Um, that's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So this is saying, well, when it's complex, it's bigger, it's somehow diffusing faster. Right. So this, is, this would not happen due to simple Stokes type drag. Right? This would have to be to, this this would be biology. Right? Okay. You know, uh, no, but I mean, you know, but you know, in some ways biology is allowed to do anything that doesn't violate the laws of physics, right? And indeed, um, late, later there was experimental evidence of something like this was, was actually happening. You know, and, and and you know, and it, you can imagine it happening either from sort of active transport type dynamics for the complex or from binding type dynamics um, of the morphogen. Um, right, but uh, I think the, the key thing to take away from this example is just that um, in general, we would like biological function, well, we, you know, biology would like biological function to be robust to things that are often fluctuating or varying, right? And that's one way to try to make uh, guesses about what might be happening in the system. This is, this sort of computational exercise is not at all a proof that this has to be what's happening, right? They wrote down, a particular model. It could have been that there are other terms they're not aware of and so forth. But it's at least a way of generating hypotheses that you can go and test. Okay. And quite generally, I would also say that it's, uh, it's essential for all of us as consumers of models to be able to look at somebody's equations and figure out what it is that they've, they've assumed. Right, so I, I, uh, with that, I want to move on to this uh, idea of, uh, of pattern formation via these, uh, the, the reaction diffusion or Turing type patterns. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's, it's really important to start by just acknowledging that this is, this is really a surprising finding, that, that it's even possible for this to happen. Because this is a situation where you have a couple chemicals or proteins, or what, what, you know, reacting elements, and if if you just mix them, you know, if you have them in some well mixed tube, they they you know they reach some steady state. Okay, whereas somehow if you allow diffusion, then you can get uh, you can get these patterns, right? And this is, um, and I would say if, based on my intuition at least, I would I would not have thought that this would be possible. Okay. Um, and and this really just. It's because if you, if you just imagine you start with some profile. Now, there's some structure here. 
But diffusion is going to naturally cause this to come down and this to come up. And right, so diffusion acts to remove these spatial patterns. But somehow, you know, in some, in some parameter regimes, if you have coupled reactants that are uh, they're activating and inhibiting each other, then you can actually get these, these spatial patterns. Okay. And uh, as, as, you, as you read about, there, there's some idea that you need to have kind of a lo local activation and kind of a global inhibition. But um, ultimately, the, the mathematical, you always have to go and think more carefully about the math than would be indicated just by those words. So this, this is at least a way to guide your thinking a little bit. But uh, ultimately, what, what matters are that you know, around this stable, the, what would be the stable fixed point, you have to actually look at these derivatives and, and so forth. And the derivatives can be um, subtle, I would say. So it's not just because you think of something as an activator or inhibitor doesn't mean that, it, that it's going to have um, that role around the fixed point that you're, that you're studying. So uh, this is just a, a caution, I suppose. Um, all right, so what, um, what I want to do is just give you, for example, one example of, uh, of a simple model that does experience uh, these, these Turing patterns uh, in, in, a, in an appropriate regime. And this is, uh, this is the Levin-Segel model of pattern formation. All right, and this, uh, this was published in 1976, and it was actually meant uh, as a model of um, kind of predator-prey interactions uh, in, um, you know, in ecology. We'll talk uh, significantly uh, more about predator-prey interactions in a few weeks. But uh, I just want to write down what they, what they, what they said. Okay. And this is a simplified model of, of their, their stuff. So I was actually um, trying to think about uh, some plankton-herbivore interactions. All right. and this is derivative respect to time. Okay, we're gonna and we're gonna follow the nomenclature of uh, a paper by uh, Butler and Goldenfeld uh, a few years ago because they're the ones that thought about the demographic noise enhancing the patterns. So we have phi and phi. First of all, who's eating whom? We're gonna we're gonna say it verbally. Who is the predator? Ready? Three, two, one. The herbivore. You know. Well. All right. So herbivores are not what they used to be. Okay. Yeah. Right. So uh, indeed, the herbivore benefits from the presence of the plankton. Right. So nobody cares about plankton, I guess. Um, all right. So. Um, all right, so that's, this, is, this, this corresponds to the predator-prey type interaction. All right, so there's some death rate associated with the herbivore or the predator. Uh, and then what you see is that there's a, there are these two growth terms for the plankton. 
Right, so there's this term, which would be kind of simple exponential growth. And then there's this term, which, actually, which is actually some sort of super exponential growth. Right? So there's some sense in which the plankton benefit each other. And this was originally introduced uh, because of something called predator satiation. But it could, it's just a general reflection of uh, the fact that in many cases, individuals benefit from the presence of other individuals. Uh, and in particular, this is known as the alley effect. And we'll spend time talking about this uh, in a few weeks as well in the context of populations and ecology. But for now, I just want to use this as an example of a, uh, of a model that gives you these, um, these Turing patterns. Okay. All right, so if you want to, you can go ahead and ask, well, what happens if we just have a well-mixed situation? All right, so if, if everything is it's not a function of x, just but it still can be a function of time. Right, you can solve these equations, and you can find what the steady states are equal to. Okay? So there is indeed a steady state, stable coexistence of the predator and the prey uh, in, in a well-mixed situation. Right? However, if you, uh, if you then go and you analyze the stability of different spatial modes, what you'll find is that in some situations, uh, particular wavelengths or wave vectors become unstable. Right? And it's just over some range of wavelengths, and that corresponds to the wavelength of the Turing patterns that you'll see. If you're curious about uh, these things in more depth, I encourage you to, uh, to attend Mehran Kardar's class, Statistical Physics and Biology. He is uh, an expert on these topics and uh, I think is a wonderful, uh, clear lecturer. Right, now, the, there's going to be some condition for these things leading to Turing patterns. Okay. Now, from your reading, do you think it's going to be mu, mu nu? Right, so this is Turing patterns require right, I'll give you 30 seconds to think about what Do you need more time? I, I'm not sure where we are. Right. Maybe another 15 seconds just to. Um... All right, let's see where we are. Ready, three, two, one. Okay, we're all over the place. I think um, we're, we're uniformly distributed between A, B, and C. Okay, so th there's an idea that you're supposed to have so-called local activation and global inhibition, right?
All right, why don't we turn to a neighbor and, and see if you can figure out what's going on. All right, why don't we uh, why don't reconvene? I'm curious where, where your thinking is. All right, let's go ahead and vote. Ready? Three, two, one. Okay, so we have many, many C's. The idea that so mu has to be much less than nu. Yes. All right, I want to make sure. Uh, uh, I was busy doing other things. Okay. Right, and all right, so mu is telling us about the diffusion coefficient of the prey. Nu is the diffusion coefficient of the herb, of the predator, right? So uh, what you want is to have local activation, right? And the thing that's activating itself is the plankton, right? So you can see that that's this, like, for example, phi squared term. Uh, and from the standpoint of a spatial situation, you can say, all right, well, let's say that we have some region with a lot of this prey. Right? Well, it's able to activate itself, so it kind of comes up. And as it does that, it is creating more of the predator, phi. Right? Okay, but because the predator has a larger diffusion coefficient, it, well, it's obviously going to grow here, but it will also diffuse away a fair amount. And that's this global inhibition of neighboring regions. Now, of course, this is just, these are just words. You have to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. All right. But what if you, you can actually do this calculation analytically uh, and, and, and derive, the, the, in this model, the condition for, um, for Turing patterns to emerge as a function of everything. And for example, if you have, thing, if you have b1 half, b1. All right, so order unity type parameters. Then the requirement for, to get Turing patterns is that nu over mu is oh, oops, must be greater than 27.8. Okay. Right. The key thing, though, is that this thing is much larger than 1. Okay. Right, so a, ge a general thing that emerges in these Turing patterns is that you need 
this so-called uh, so inhibiting type partner to have a much larger effective diffusion coefficient than the activating partner. Okay. Now, the problem with this is that this thing is indeed much larger than one, okay. which, means, which, kinda, which limits the overall maybe usefulness of this as a mechanism just because if, if it really is simple diffusion, How much bigger would the, if, let's say, low Reynolds number regime, right? These are just molecules experience diffusion. How much bigger does the um, inhibitor have to be? No, no. How much bigger does the, which one's, oh, this is so confusing. All right. The, so this is big and this is little, right? Okay. Yeah. So how much bigger does the activator, oh my goodness. There are too many things to keep track of here. Okay, um, it's because I don't have any written down. Okay, so that's the activator. Okay, all right, let's just be, okay, so this one's the activator, right? And this one's the inhibitor, right? And the inhibitor has to diffuse much more than the activator. So the inhibitor has to be much smaller than the activator. Okay, good. So how much bigger does the activator have to be than the inhibitor to, for this to be true? Does it scale as this? 28 or 28 squared or 28 cubed. Right. In terms of radius, how much uh, scales linearly, remember our Einstein equation, which you guys had fun thinking about on the exam, kt over gamma. All right, yeah. So this, this would require, for example, the activator to be 30 times bigger in terms of radius than the inhibitor in order to and have this emerge just as a result of diffusion, right? Simple diffusion, and and that's just not a typical thing, okay? For for just range of protein sizes, okay? But you can imagine cooking up various ways to make this happen. But there's a a very nice uh, development that I mentioned, which is that there's another surprising aspect in these problems, which is that in uh, in many cases demographic noise can lead to patterns or maybe you might call them quasi-patterns. But things that, for all intents and purposes, look like uh, something that's pseudo-periodic. Right. So it's, it's, it's a pseudo-Turing pattern, maybe. Okay. And indeed, if you add, if you actually do this simulation with those parameters, right, where you do the explicit demographic uh, fluctuations, i.e., you take into account that this corresponds to a prey giving birth. This corresponds to a predator eating a prey. Random events, just like what we've done in the context of a Gillespie simulation. Okay. Um, then what you find is that with demographic fluctuations, or demographic noise, then the condition here, nu over mu, has to be it's only 2.48. And indeed, uh, in Butler and Goldenfeld, they, they, they derive these things uh, using kind of field the theoretic approaches. There was a 2011 paper and also 2008 or 9. Okay. Right. And the nice thing here is that what you see is that in the presence of these, this, these, this demographic noise that will be, will, be will be there, the difference in diffusivities that are required is not nearly as large as when you're thinking about the, um, the mean field equations. 
All right, so just in the last, are there any questions about this before we talk about center fighting in E. coli? Oh, <laughs> OK, now you're thinking about the actual plankton herbivore. Um, all right, so I think that there are many things to say. Uh, I mean, w one of them would just be that maybe the patterns that you see between actual plankton and act actual herbivores is not due to the Turing mechanism, right? Um, yeah, um, right, but, but you, would, you still, I mean, for the, Turing, for, to, for the Turing mechanism to be at play to generate Pat, you know, spatial patterns. It, it requires that uh, that this inhibitor, you know, some do something equivalent to diffusion more rapidly. It has to it has to move away more rapidly, right? But but right, but it could right. It, that's the thing. It, um, it could be that um, the plankton only move around from the currents, whereas the herbivore actually has a directed motion. I have to say I don't actually know enough about plankton to know whether this is at all. I mean, it, I think that base statement I think is true, but I, I don't know how the numbers work out. Yeah. Yes, uh, yes. Um, and I, both in this case and in the predator, the simple predator prey oscillations, right? Of what, you know, so this, one, one thing we're going to see with the predator prey populations later is that you can also get this sort of oscillations in time, right? So this could be in time or this could be as a function of space, right? Uh, but in both cases, it's really that you have um, a resonant enhancement in some areas. So the, the, the demographic fluctuations somehow excite all um, frequencies or all wavelengths. But then what happens is that, in this case, if you look at the, um, the eigenvalues, OK, actually, I want to be close to 0, though. Um, if you look at how the modes decay, so the, um, the, like the eigenvalues function of the wave number, what you see is that you end up getting things that look kind of like this. So whereas a Turing pattern is when particular wave lengths or wave modes actually become unstable. And then you get, you get mean field type patterns. And in this sort of situation, what happens is that you just are, you're just close here. So then uh, you excite all of the wave numbers or wavelengths. And then some of them take a long time to go away. So then they build up. And then that's the, that's the resulting patterns that you see. All right, so what I want to do is just, uh, for the last 10 minutes, talk about uh, this, uh, this min system. Because it's, um, I think it's a beautiful example of a combination of kind of system, you know, kind of systems biology questions together with uh, reaction diffusion systems, and also some beautiful in vitro experiments that, um, that, that I, I've quite appreciated. All right, so, uh, all right, so the question is, uh, you know, you imagine you're a cell, okay, you've gone to all this work, all right, so now you're nice and long, so you'd like to divide into two cells, and the question is, how do you know where to divide? Okay. So you imagine that you're some E. coli cell, all right? So uh, you, you're you know, maybe six microns long, all right? Everything is great. And the question is, uh, you want to divide? Where would you like to divide if you're an E. coli cell? Middle. Middle. OK, so what you'd like to do is go here. Indeed, what happens is that there's the so-called uh, Z-ring, all right? There's a kind of a pseudopolymeric protein that forms a ring around here. And then it constricts itself and pinches off the membrane. And that, that's how you get two cells. So there's this formation of this uh, of the Z ring that constricts, and that's um, and that's this cell division event. The question is how how do you know where to put it? Okay. 
And, and that's what this, uh, this min system is for. And it's, uh, of course, like everything in, in bacterial genetics, it was identified by, uh, by mutations. So that's um, so the min system. It's called that because um, these mutants formed so-called mini cells, right? Mini cells, right? So if you, instead of dividing in the center, where you have you might you might have two copies of the genome here, if instead you divide over here, then what you're going to end up with is a very long cell with two copies of the genome, and you're going to end up with this mini cell without any uh, any DNA. Okay, and uh, those mini cells are they going to do well for the long term? No. Right. And they actually can, can actually survive for a little bit. And they, uh, people have argued that maybe they could be useful for, useful for synthetic biology because they still make proteins, but they're not going to go and like, take over the world because they don't have any DNA. Um, but but th these are the so-called, these are the mini cells that, uh, that, that happen if you have mutations in the MIN system. Okay. Now, um, I think the, the, the three players are min C, D, and E, min C, min D, min E. Uh, all right, so I think that min A and min B ended up not actually existing or something. I mean, in the sense that they identified the mutants, but then they were wrong about something. OK, so, um, so the, the three that actually ended up being involved in the actual min system are C, D, and E. All right, so this uh, min, min C prevents um, formation of the Z ring. Now, min D and E are, are the kind of the amazing guys. Uh, so this guy binds to the membrane. Uh, and recruits min C. Whereas uh, min E, what it does is it, um, it put, pulls min D off of the membrane. Okay? So it binds to min D. And ejects from the membrane. And what has been seen by doing uh, imaging in live E. coli cells with fluorescently labeled min D and min E is that there are remarkable oscillations from pole to pole. Okay. So and indeed that's that doesn't require min C. So min C is somehow following the others. What happens is that min D binds over here, then min E binds and kind of pushes it off, and then, and then the min D comes over here, and then min E kind of pulls it off, and it, it, it kind of goes back and forth. The period is sort of, a, you know, minutes, maybe? Okay. Uh, so it's a, a really remarkable thing that happens uh, in vivo. And of course, uh, and, and, the, and the idea of what's happening is that if min D comes here, and then it comes here, right, on each of the edges, then it doesn't hang out in the middle. And that means that it's only in the middle where min C can then um, bind, or sorry, or sorry, no. So, so because min C is following min D, then only in the middle can you form the Z ring because that's where min C is not, right? Now, from uh, it's wonderful to do things in live cells because that's the the native context and so forth. But I think that in some cases it's also wonderful if you can take purified components and recapitulate interesting behaviors uh, in vitro, right? Because then at least you know what is, um, you know, what, what is at least, what's 
sufficient to generate a particular kind of dynamical behavior. Right? And, and beca because this system had been uh, proposed as a model system for reaction diffusion uh, mechanism to get this behavior. And so there, there was this paper by uh, Martin Luce in Petra, Petra Schwill's lab uh, in, um, well, where was it? Yeah, in Dresden. And, uh, and what they did is they took a supported lipid bilayer, okay, so a membrane on glass. And then they added purified components of min uh, D and min E that were fluorescently labeled. And then they saw uh, amazing, amazing patterns, these amazing reaction diffusion waves traveling along. Right? Now, on the first day of lecture, I actually showed you what some of those things um, looked like. I, um, I'm, I didn't want to like, use up the projector again, but maybe I can pull up this movie because it is, it is kind of fabulous. Um, Right, so I, it may be that you can't see these things very well, but this is uh, min, uh, min D, min E, and an overlay of the two imaged on a, a two-dimensional membrane. Okay. And, and the movies are just amazing. I, you know, when, I, when you see this, you think that it's like a simulation. Right? It's so like, incredible watching these things go. Uh, after class, I, you can come up. I can show you the paper, and you can, uh, you can look at the movie in, in more depth. But uh, they're really uh, amazing patterns, and it's, it's patterns that you would predict from some sort of Turing-type reaction diffusion mechanism. Okay. Uh, and uh, so th there are a few things uh, that are maybe worth saying in, the, in this business. So these are fluorescently labeled min D, min E, right? All right. So they started out with min D that was uniform, and then they added min E, and over the t time scale of about an hour, they started seeing these sorts of patterns. Okay. Uh, and uh, as may be kind of expected from the in vivo behavior, what you see are these things where the um, where min D looks like this, whereas min E looks like that. Okay, and then the wave travels here to the left, okay, because the min E is ejecting the min D from the membrane, causing this whole thing to move. All right, so this is a situation where you have um, both of these proteins in the liquid, right, so in the buffer, uh, as well as on the membrane, and they're coming on and off and so forth. Uh, and in this situation, it's wonderful because they can do all sorts of things like control the concentration of min E and see that the velocity of these waves changes uh, as you change the concentration of min E. Right? So this is a really experimentally tractable system. And then you can ask, well, what kind of model would, uh, would lead to that sort of behavior? All right, so such waves, do you think that it uh, requires ATP? Just for fun, we can vote yes or no. It's all right. All right, ready? Three, two, one. Yes. Yeah, so it, indeed it does require ATP. Okay. Um, because the, these things are, uh, and in, that's a general feature of the, these, these Turing type. Uh, patterns is that there is some there th that is a non-equilibrium structure formation. Okay. Now, uh, one nice thing that you can do in, in this sort of system is you can ask, well, what happens if I photo bleach a particular area? Okay, so I come in, I photo bleach. So now the profile looks like, you know, I di you know I, I locally deplete the fluorescence here. 
question is, will this move together with the traveling wave, or does it stay fixed? Right. And in these mechanisms, do you think should this locally depleted area should it move or should it stay where it is? Do you understand the question? All right. All right. Move, yes, no. Ready? Three, two, one. It actually doesn't move. Uh, right, so, um, so depleted area doesn't move. And, and this is just a reflection of that these waves are, are not the result of individual molecules moving together with the wave. But it's, it's a wave like what you see in the ocean or along a string or whatnot, right? So the, um, the motion is a result of uh, the individual molecules coming and going and communicating with each other. But it's not a reflection of, of actual molecules having directed motion. Okay? Because indeed, there's no mechanism in these models for directed motion, right? What you see is that in all these models, the only thing that is changed, you know, that has a, that is a function of position are these is diffusion terms, right? So there's, it's all random diffusion, but then you get global, global motion. 